Well, we come to the word of the Lord this morning, as we always do, and delight in it. And our text this morning is from the book of Hebrews. We continue in Hebrews chapter 8. If you would turn there in your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, you'll find that on page 1200 in your pew Bibles. As we come back to this great text, we return from last week's discussion, where we began by discussing grace. The expression of grace in the New Covenant is the most significant in the Bible. And as we examine the New Covenant today, you'll see God's grace in a most amazing way, but so much more so in a most personal way. We couch this idea in, uh, of God's gracious provision in light of a good deal. Perhaps as one might find at uh, an especially good sale. Although the grace of our text far outweighs any sale, there is some remote similarity. And as men, we don't really understand as well perhaps the idea of a really great sale as our better halves do. But if you are a married man, or for those of you unmarried men, you might learn something here as well you'd better pay attention when your wife comes home with some of those trophy deals that she hunted for two hours for and be thankful that she did spend the time to hunt for them. Particularly if you expect her to delight in the trophy buck or the big fish that you bring home, you better spend a little attention making sure you recognize her efforts as well. Well, we might uh, akin this type of sale to, to something so incredible as if all of the homes in Mobile were 50% off. Well, we could probably get behind that. That sounds like a pretty good deal. Or, or maybe that all new cars were 90% off. We would say these are pretty good deals. But what we're going to see today pales, makes these pale so far in comparison that it will just be incredible. Because as we move through our text this morning, we'll see God's glorious grace in the new covenant as a deal like no other in the history of mankind. And this is where the title from our text comes from. The greatest deal in history. The greatest deal in history. We would call this part two as we continue to the second part of our message today. So let's take a look and read through the scripture and then we'll come back and unpack this second part. Follow along with me as I read, beginning in verse 6. Although it appears like verse 7 is that beginning, it does make a transition verse there at verse 6. Hebrews 8 and verse 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with Judah, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, 
and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen, and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said, A new covenant, he made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. The greatest deal in history. As we come to the main subject of Hebrews here and Jesus' superiority over the high priesthood in chapter 8, it takes us really into the heart of this section. We saw the introduction of this topic of Jesus' superiority over the high priesthood beginning all the way back in verse 14 of chapter 4 and the introduction continuing all the way through chapter 7. And in that introduction, we had that repeat focus on Melchizedek, as you'll remember. The two aspects of that were to show people that they, they were dull of hearing because they didn't want to know about Melchizedek. And then he proclaims how amazing that figure is because of the parallels to Christ. And that became the second element of the introduction. The thing we also have to understand as we come through this and always consider is our context. The importance of the aspects of what is going on around our text so that we rightly interpret God's word. As it were, we have to put ourselves into the sandals of the first century Jewish church because that is who the book was written to. And to recognize the importance of the high priesthood to them was everything. Now, when we consider the early Jewish church, we often look at them and say, well, as a whole, the Lord proclaimed them as Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and those who were really legalistic and likely not true believers at all. But make no mistake, there were many true fastidious Jews who sought to honor God with all of their heart, who sought to obey the law. And in so doing, the high priesthood was everything to them. It was the mechanism by which they came to God. They could not come on their own. They could not look into and understand. They could not even bring prayer before God rightly because everything was to be done through the high priesthood. So now with the expression that there's to be a change in this high priesthood, it was a very big change for them indeed. And thus there needed to be all of these elements to convince them. And as we got to chapter 8, Jesus' supremacy over the high priesthood began to be established by these series of comparisons to show them the system that they were in and the new system that was being presented so that they could recognize, contrast, and compare and see the incredible superiority that existed in the new system. The first comparison that we saw was that of the ministries the earthly ministry of the high priest versus the heavenly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. This was such an important argument because it was indefensible. There was nothing that they could argue to in any way say that somehow the heavenly existence of a high priest didn't far outweigh the earthly existence of that earthly high priest. So it was an argument that was presented that was indefensible as the comparison 
of these two ministries in verses 1 to 6. Yet it was not an intuitive change. It was not something that they understood in their normal plane of thought. They had to be taken away from their earthly existence and brought to consider heavenly things. You realize, beloved, that's exactly what we're supposed to be doing. That's exactly what Colossians 3 tells us, where we are to keep our eyes focused on Jesus who is seated above at the right hand of God. So the very perspective that we wrestle with in getting our eyes off of this earthly plane and all that we deal with and focusing on heaven above is exactly the argument that was made for the first most important comparison of the ministries. And then the second comparison was that of the covenants. It's the text which we're looking at. The covenant was the heart of the Jewish system of belief. This was the pact. This was the arrangement between God and his chosen people, Israel. It was the method by which they came to God. The covenant was the very heart of the law. It was the the foundation under which all of these laws were governed, or we might even say over-governed. Them having made 613 stipulations in addition to that stated in the scripture. The old covenant was inseparably tied to the high priesthood. So although the superiority of Jesus' heavenly ministry was already established and indefensible, now they needed to recognize that there was a weakness in the very fabric and covenant which they had made with God that was connected so intricately through the high priesthood. The the Jewish church needed to see that the covenant had a serious problem. But that problem was taken care of with the new covenant. And we'll see today exactly how that problem was resolved. This way the new covenant solved the problem and that is the greatest deal in history. The first point which we looked at last week was the coming of the covenant in verse 6. And we examined in verses 6 through 8a how that is verse 6 was both a conclusion and an introduction. It concluded the comparison of ministries and it launched us into a comparison of the covenants. This was another example of the incredibly advanced grammar and literary structure of the book of Hebrews. We've often talked about how beautiful this is. This book holds so much power, but just to read the book of Hebrews from a literary point of view, if you enjoy great prose and great writing, the book of Hebrews is some of the finest ever penned. There are introductions that weave themselves into the very introductory verses of the book and then play out all the way through the next 13 chapters. And there is this back and forth movement that continues to create this excitement and really is an absolutely stunning piece of writing. Another facet of the conclusion in verse 6 was Jesus's more excellent ministry. And we noted that this more excellent ministry is something which Jesus had already obtained. So the superiority of Jesus' ministry was now effectual and in process. That was an important point for them to understand. They're not waiting for it. They're not looking forward to Messiah coming. The text is telling them he is here. 
His ministry is established and moving ahead. We also saw Jesus as the mediator of a better covenant. Now, we aren't told what that covenant is, and that's on purpose. It's to set up attention for us. Like, well, what do you mean a better covenant? That's exactly what the author is doing, making us ask the question. Very much like a good salesman is going to do as he tries to cinch that deal. If, if you go to buy a new car, the salesman's going to ask you, well, what color do you like? What model do you like? And then he's going to get you out in that part of the lot where you've got your favorite model and your favorite color. And then he's going to get the door open, get you inside and say, oh, look how nice this is inside. Little wood trim here, you know, nice gauges. You're going to be, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm liking this. I've got the color, I've got the model. And, and, and then he's going to wait and then he's going to take you on the test drive and really seal the deal. Well, this is the introductory question that draws us in, that there is some better covenant, but we don't know what it is. But somehow it is better. We're told that it's built on better promises. Now, not just built, but it says that it's already been enacted. That is such important verbiage for us. The covenant already has been enacted. This, this verb tense, this perfect verb shows that this is a past action that continues on today. They need to understand that although as Jeremiah proclaimed this future new covenant, that covenant is now in effect. But what are these better promises? Well, the divinely inspired author doesn't tell us. He leaves us seeing the good, but not fully knowing. What we do know is that the old covenant promises were pretty incredible, as revealed in Leviticus 26. I'm not going to go back over those. You can go back and listen to last week's message and pick up on the nuances of all of the promises of the old covenant. Then in verse 7, it further revealed the coming of the covenant by showing that the problem existed that we earlier referenced. That was that there's a fault in the, new, in the old covenant. And otherwise, without a fault, why would we need a new covenant? Important. Such a simple point, but the Lord leaves nothing unturned. Well, well why do I need to, you know, have this new covenant if the old one's working fine? Well, it's not. It's not. There is a huge fault in it, and it's being revealed. Verse 8 further revealed the fault. It said it was them, literally, there in verse 8a. God found fault with them, that is, with the priesthood. They were the problem. The fault was not with the covenant. The fault was not with the law. The fault was not with God. The fault was with the priesthood. Those sinful men could not carry forward this divine teaching. So the coming of the covenant revealed its superiority in that it was better. And it revealed the problem with the old covenant. And with that, we began to look at our second point, the conditions of the covenant, which began in verse 8b and went all the way to 12. And we remember from last week that in each of those five verses, that there are five conditions that are reflected, one in each verse. Last week, we looked at the first two points. We looked at the presentation in verse 8b. That was where we talked about the days were coming and the importance of the temporal prophecy coming to existence. And we also addressed that the new covenant is, is specifically to Israel. It applied to Israel directly. Their temporary rejection, however, brought 
covenant benefits to the church in part, but not in full. The Lord's Supper actually marked the extension of the new covenant benefits to the church. The Gospels each tell of the Lord's teaching at the Last Supper and how he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood. But it was when Paul quoted that same text to the church in Corinth, to the Gentile church, that the benefits were extended directly and firmly to the church. Paul also talks about this in Romans 9, 23 and 24. In Romans 9, 23, Paul writes, And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he called, not among Jews only, but also among Gentiles. So the new covenant is specifically written and given to Israel. But it is applied to the church in portion, not in totality, because some of those blessings did not come to the church. You could go back and you could look at Romans 9 to 11 regarding this wonderful and complex topic. And I, I'd encourage you to go read those sections of Scripture. Romans 9 to 11 is a beautiful discussion about the relationship between Israel and the church. And something we will spend time on one day, Lord willing. So the presentation was the first condition of the covenant. And then the second condition in verse 9 was the past. The past in verse 9, it, it showed God's tender care. It showed him leading his children of Israel in such a gentle way. But it also elaborated on their failings. How they did not continue in the covenant. God had done everything, but they did not obey. There's much more on all of this, and you can go back and listen to it in last week's message. So let's go on to our third condition. Having seen the presentation, having seen the past, here in our second point, the conditions of the covenant, look with me at verse 10 and the third condition of the covenant, which I've titled the plan. The plan. Verse 10 of chapter 8 says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. As we consider this beautiful presentation of the plan, the old covenant, as we've mentioned, was with Israel, and so also now is the new covenant. And the plan is solely being implemented by God. There, there is no participation by the people or by the children of Israel. We remember that that was not the case with the old covenant. The Old Covenant is what we call bilateral in that there was a required obligation by the people to fulfill the covenant. Herein was the fault that we just referenced. They wouldn't do it. They couldn't do it because of the sinfulness that existed within them. So we see in that, in that way that verse 10 begins and it says, after those days. This is introducing for us the beginning of the new covenant and, and helps us remember our context. This is a quote from Jeremiah. 
And as Jeremiah quoted this text, the nation of Israel was preparing, and more specifically, Judah, the two southern tribes, were preparing to go into captivity. Nebuchadnezzar is knocking at the door. He is preparing to storm Jerusalem and sack and lay siege to the entire city. And Jeremiah gives this new covenant prophecy, one of the few positive prophecies in the book of Jeremiah. And he promises the blessing of this new covenant, which will come after those days. We, of course, must remember in this that this prophecy that was once future now has become a present reality. And it says, God will put his law into their minds and into their hearts he will write them. It's very interesting regarding that translation in the New American Standard and most of our other modern translations that they don't reflect that exact structure from the original language. The, the old 1901 American Standard Version is the only version that carries forward that exact Greek structure, which again we would translate literally as that God will put his laws into their minds and into their hearts, he will write them. Now you might say, that doesn't seem like a, a big change from what we have. But the difference is that in the original, there is a structure that's brought forward. Uh, we call that a, a chiastic structure. Now that might seem like just a big word and what does that mean? But it is very important a chiastic structure was after the Greek letter chi, which was an X. And when you saw that X, you recognized and immediately your eyes drew to the central focus where those two lines crossed. And in a chiasm, the outside things work toward the center and the center becomes the most important part. So if I read for you again that literal translation, listen to the center part. God will put his laws into their minds and in their hearts he will write them. We see immediately that it is that center focus of minds and hearts that's coming forward. One commentator notes about this that the mind is the whole thinking power of man which directs his acts internally. That, that's so important to recognize, that it is what directs our acts internally, not externally. This is not some law, this is not some outside force that is bringing us to obedience because we know of consequences. This is what we do in our mind. This is what we decide to carry forward, sometimes in opposition to the law. We all understand that, both with regards to the posted legal law if any of us were to ever go past the posted speed limit, I'm sure none of you would and I ought not. Might happen from time to time. That is my mind making that decision regardless of the law. So also do we know this with regards to spiritual law. We remember from last week that verses 8 to 12 are a quote from the Septuagint. That is the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible. What happened with the Septuagint was that there were many who didn't read Hebrew any longer. The Greek culture had taken over during the church age. And so because of that, the Jews had gone and they had translated the Old Testament Hebrew into Greek. 
that is known as the Septuagint. And this is a quote literally from that. It's interesting that in the original quote of this from the Hebrew in Jeremiah 31, 33, it literally says, I will give my Torah or my law into them. It is, it, he is placing it into the inside parts so that they will respond according to it. So that it is his law which will be the outworking. We will not make decisions with our mind that are contrary to the law of God. That is the promise of the new covenant. It further confirms the important aspects of these internal facets. It is, beloved, our internal obedience to God that he is looking for. He is not looking for our life's actions as a function of when we know that we're being looked upon or when we're being scrutinized for the way that we live. It's not the way that we drive when the state patrolman's behind us, but when we're driving down the middle of the road and, and, and there's in the middle of the night and there's no one there. That's the kind of obedience that he is desiring to see and that he's bringing forward through this internal facet of the new covenant which he has put literally as a gift into the mind, into the person. Then we see the heart. The heart is often parallel to the mind. It's used in scripture a lot of times to represent the overall person. So when you see heart, oftentimes it talks about the whole person. One commentator says, it is the seat of personality with the power of thinking, feeling, willing, where all thoughts and words and deeds originate. Well, we understand that from the New Testament too, don't we? I think the Lord said something about that in Mark 7 and verse 18. See if this doesn't strike a resonant chord with you as the Lord spoke this from Mark 7, 18. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding and also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared all food clean. And he was saying, That which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murderers, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. So it is this heart that comes forward. It is that which brings defilement. It is that which God says he will engrave, he will write upon the hearts of man his law. God's covenant plan promises that he'll give a gift to our minds and that he will engrave upon our hearts his law. This is the ideal of sanctification's outworking, beloved. This is full obedience to scripture and it is to be a continued endeavor of our lives. The ideal of sanctification is confirmed there in the last two stanzas of verse 10, where it says, And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. When we fully live in light of that, beloved, 
That is when the new covenant, that is when God's law of the new covenant is resident within us. When everything we do is governed by the fact that he is our God and that we are his people. And that we will not defile him. It is so important for us to understand this. These confirm the fulfillment of the plan. And with each condition so far, it's all of God. Verse 11 takes us to our fourth condition of the covenant, and it is the power. The power. Look at verse 11 again. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest. What's going on here? Why is teaching a bad thing? Isn't that what it says? And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen. Is there a problem with teaching? No, the idea and the problem comes in one man teaching another about God. And it is an ineffective and inferior mechanism because of the one bringing it. It is one that lacks power, but why? The same reason that the covenant was flawed. We too as men are flawed. The problem was not with the covenant or God, but it was with man. Man couldn't obey the old covenant because of their sin, and man can't bring illumination of God to another man. Only God can do that. We can't, we can't bring salvation to another person. Only God can open the mind of those who will not see. Beloved, this further confirms the concepts of predestination and election. We can't convert anyone. Only God will convert those whom he chooses. Oh, yes, we can further inform hearts and minds of those whom God has already enlightened and awakened. But until this time, until God opens the eyes and unstops the ears, we're speaking to dead men. And only God can raise men from the dead. This whole notion is emphasized in the clause, know the Lord. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, know the Lord. That verb know is a command, and it is also a past tense verb. So it's like me going out on the street and finding an unbeliever and saying, know the Lord, know the Lord. Know the Lord. It's not going to have a lot of effect, is it? I mean, it may have an effect. He's going to say, you're a whack job. But he's not going to come to an understanding of God. Because it is not of God. And only God can bring it. Because in our history, in our past, all that we know is sin. We were born in sin. We lived in sin. And each and every one of us today can truly understand that condition. Only God can bring life to the dead. God contrasts man's inability and confirms the power at the end of verse 11, where he says, For all will know me from the least to the greatest. All will know God. We see this repeated in the New Testament in 1 John 2.27, where it describes this condition. 1 John 2 and 27 says, As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, 
and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. When God comes to us, when his spirit enters us, he teaches us through his spirit which lives within us. Is this not what Jesus said when he told them, when I go, the Holy Spirit will come and he will bring to remembrance all that I have said. It's God's Holy Spirit that lives in us. That helps us to see that we are falling short, that we are not living the way that we should live. This is the the amazing knowledge of God that comes only from him. John 6.45 further expresses this. The Lord said in John 6.45, It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. If we are taught of God, if we have the anointing that first John talked about, then we come to him. We come to the Son. We come to Christ. And we live in light of that truth. It is Jesus who becomes the full expression of that teaching. Beloved, if you're here and don't know Jesus... You're not a recipient of that new covenant. Does the new covenant ring in your life? Does the gospel play in your head like that well-known song that you grew up with? Does the thought of Jesus come to your mind continually? Now, yes, other things will cloud us. Yes, we have a, a battle that wages within us. And so perhaps it is not a continual understanding of Christ in your life. But does it come sometimes throughout the day? Certainly sometimes throughout the week, are you just brought to an understanding of Christ? If you are not, then you are not His. And you have not received that new covenant Because this applies to everyone. It isn't an issue of great intelligence or fame or money. But what does the text say? From the least to the greatest. You know, that is such a blessing for us to recognize when we see some that are physically challenged or mentally challenged. We need not wonder if God can reach them. From the least to the greatest, Christ will make himself known. He will move in all hearts. What a blessing to recognize his incredible power. But oh, how we must praise Jesus that it applies to all from the least to the greatest. This is the power of God. The presentation, the past, the plan, the power, and fifth in verse 12, the purpose. The purpose. For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. The, the first Greek word after the conjunction for is the word merciful. It's at the beginning of the sentence because it is all of the emotion, all of the power at this concluding piece. This is the purpose that he would be merciful. For merciful I will be, it literally is translated. The purpose of the new covenant is for God to display his mercy. What is mercy? It's that we don't get what we deserve, isn't it? God's mercy is that we don't receive the punishment that we each deserve. God desires to show his mercy. How? To our iniquities. 
Two of our modern translations well translate this iniquity as unrighteousness. Unrighteousness. It is everything that is not right. It is everything that is wrong and contrary to the ways of God. It is that upon which God desires to show his mercy. How, how, could, how can we even understand this? When someone wrongs us, when something, someone offends us or offends our family, how can we understand that the first thing we want to do is show mercy? We cannot. Because this is God's divine provision. The second stanza expands upon the first where God no longer remembers our sins. This glorious truth is presented in a couple of my favorite verses in the Old Testament. In Psalm 103 and verse 12, where the scripture says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. How far is these from the west? It's infinitely far. That's how far God wants to remove our sin from us. Infinitely far. He wants us to be completely apart from it and have no connection. And that's how he will see it. Or Micah 7, 19. The prophet Micah says in verse 7 and 19, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. How deep is the deepest part of the sea? How easy is it to get there? That is how far God wants our sins removed from us. And in his mercy, he will bring it. Psalm 32 is one of David's songs of contrition after his sin with Bathsheba. And that psalm begins in verse 1, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Beloved, do we stop and think about that? How blessed are we that our transgressions are forgiven? You know, there is a, a wonderful song about Psalm 32 by the sons of Korah. And you can read your Bible in, in all of their songs as they're right out of the Psalter, right out of the Psalms. And, and blessed is he who sins are forgiven. Blessed is he whose sins the Lord will not count against him. Do we stop and recognize what a blessing this is? What a gift this is to us? That God's mercy and in it, he will not count those transgressions against us. You know, I, I was listening to a, a song uh, on the radio by Mercy Me. And it's, I hear the bells. Some people think of it as kind of a uh, Christmas song. Of course, I listen to Christmas music all year long. But it says, I heard the bells on Christmas Day singing peace, glory. Do we stop and consider peace? We have peace with God. The world knows no peace like we in this room who know Jesus Christ. That mercy, that understanding ought just bring us to our knees to recognize all that he has done for us. These are indeed incredible conditions, the conditions of the covenant, which lead us to our third point, the conclusion of the covenant in verse 13. The conclusion of the covenant. Verse 13 says, When he said a new covenant, he made the first obsolete. 
But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Verse 13 begins and says, when he said a new covenant. What is this? Who, who's talking? Who's saying this? That's exactly the question that the author wants us to ask. This is another point of that tension. Another point of grammar that makes us stop and ask. Now I know for many of us as men, stopping and asking directions is just not in the fabric of our being. This is a time where we have to stop and say, what is going on? Who is the one? Who is the one that is saying this, a new covenant? Well, it describes Jesus' words perfectly at the Last Supper, as recorded in Luke 22, 20. It was here that the Lord said, and in the same way he took the cup also after supper, after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is the very words of Christ at the Lord's Supper. He is the one who said a new covenant. And as he did this, he made the first obsolete. No longer did it have any impact. In so doing, Jesus made the Passover sacrifice obsolete. He made the foundation of the law obsolete. He made the foundation of the old covenant obsolete because the Passover was the pinnacle of that. All of the nation of Israel's deliverance from Egypt focused on the Passover. All of the plagues moved towards that fateful night when they took the blood of a lamb. And after they had put it into a bucket, having killed that animal, they took hyssop and they painted the doorposts and the lintels. So as the angel of death came through Egypt that night and killed every firstborn among man and animal, he passed over their homes. And when Moses got them out to Mount Sinai and the Lord spoke with them, the first thing he told them to do was to observe the Passover and to remember that on this day, I passed over your firstborn. And so in they are to be holy to me. And this became the foundation of the covenant and the foundation of all of the law. And yet now that law is becoming obsolete. God is removing it from them. It was old and ready to, to disappear, literally near to disappearing, as the footnotes there in your New American Standard show. And indeed, it was near. Because when he said this, it was Thursday night. And it was so near that by 3 p.m. the next day, it would be over. And the old covenant would be done away with. Because at 3 p.m. he gave up his life on the cross of Calvary. And the new covenant was ordained in his blood. So as we see the coming of the covenant, we, we draw to see a better covenant built on better promises. So what are these better promises? And what could be better than what God had done for them? Remember, he said that he would provide them all provision. What's better than having everything you need provided by God? He said that he would provide, these are all the old covenant, he said he would provide protection. What's better than being protected by God? If the Shekinah glory stood before the nation of Israel 
and stood as their rear guard and fenced them in to protect them from the Egyptians, I think that's pretty good protection. I'm feeling pretty good right now about that. If he said he would provide proliferation in the old covenant, you shall not lack for children. All of your animals shall continue to conceive. None shall be barren. That's a pretty good promise. I'm excited about that. We went through eight years of infertility before the Lord blessed us with our children. We understand to the smallest degree that blessing. And God said that he would dwell with them. What could be better than provision and protection and proliferation and God dwelling with them? Only one thing. Specifically the plan in verse 10. It was not just provision, protection, and proliferation. It was all of these. But it was not just God dwelling with them. It was God dwelling in them. God is in us. We no longer are functioning as our own. We no longer are our own. God has taken over this life. We are his. We are slaves to the master on high, delighting in the privilege of being his servants and doing his bidding. They could not obey even God's incredibly benevolent provision as he dwelt with them. Nor, beloved, could we. So he put his laws in their mind and he engraved them on their hearts to be their God, that they would be his people. And the power for this plan was through those who would make themselves known that he would be their God. And the purpose was to forgive man's sins. The most glorious grace, the most magnificent act that is conceivable by man. Who could fathom such a plan? Only God. Only God. Jesus' superiority is stamped all over the new covenant. It was him who inaugurated it. As he sat that night with his disciples and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes knowing all that would befall him. He inaugurated that covenant. It is he who initiated it, who went through all those beatings, who was marred more than any man. Not some slightly blood-stained, beautiful picture of a man on a cross with some thorns on his head, but a man that had been beaten so badly that he was unrecognizable by anyone who had ever known him. It was he who confirmed and sealed it as he was nailed to the cross at Calvary. And as that spear was pierced through his side after he had given up his life to confirm that death. And it is him who sustains it. It is him who dwells in us to continue to show that to us, to continue to empower us to do his bidding. This is grace unmeasured. This is glory untold. And talk about a good deal. There can be no question. This is the greatest deal in history. I think Paul sums it up best in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Where he says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on my behalf, on your behalf, that we 
might become the righteousness of God in him. We are to live for Christ. Our lives are to reflect the living God. The only question is, what are you doing with Jesus? Is the new covenant ringing in your mind and your heart? Are you recognizing that you are bought with a price that is beyond recognition? If you don't, then it's time, my friend. If you're a young person here who has not understood the truth of this word and recognize that you must be obedient to the confession of Jesus Christ as your Lord and obedient to him in the waters of baptism, it's time for you to open your eyes and come to Christ. It's time for you to recognize that you are a sinner no matter what your age and that you must confess that sin and repent. You must turn from it and live for Christ. If these thoughts never come to your mind throughout the week, then you are not living for Christ. No matter what you may have said walking an aisle or being baptized or praying a prayer, it is a daily outworking of obedience. It is sanctification. It is growing it. No, none of us are perfect. We all fall short of the glory of God, but it is growing in it every day. It is taking opportunity to allow Christ that has placed himself in us and put it out. Put it out to the world around us. How do we do that? Sometimes we feel awkward about that. Sometimes we feel unprepared. Sometimes I feel like I don't have the words. I'm going to sound like a fool. I'm going to disgrace the Lord. No. He'll use the greatest of our foolishness for his glory. So come. Come on Saturday. Come and practice. Come and learn. Come and join. Come proclaim Christ with us here in our community. What a delight it is for us to recognize. Because God is ready, beloved, for us to take advantage of the greatest deal in history. The only question is, are you ready? Are you ready for the transaction? If so, then it's time for us to move forward.